Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. This week we finally get into a little bit more of a controversial subject. We will be talking to Dr. Thomas Woods, going into politics and talking about government and regulation and things like that. So it's definitely going to be an interesting one, going to raise some eyebrows and possibly some blood pressure. John and I differ on a bunch of thoughts, so that's that's pretty interesting to check out the dynamic. But first, John, do you want to tell our listeners about Dr. Woods a little bit? Sure. Dr. Woods has a bachelor's degree from Harvard University and a PhD from Columbia University. He's written many books, 11 of which have become New York Times bestsellers. That's a that's a pretty good resume right there. Yeah, it's not a not a bad feat. Highly esteemed, this guy. Yeah, and I just wanted to mention uh, for this podcast, I've probably mentioned it before. I recently went back to work. And this has limited my ability to participate in some of the interviews on Smart People Podcast. So Chris took the duty of performing this interview on his own. After he finished it, you know, he sent over the audio for me to hear. And then we had a pretty heated 40, 45 minute conversation on what our, our thoughts were. So please be sure to pay attention to our conversation after Dr. Woods' interview as we really get into, you know, what our opinions are 
on the matter that he brings up. Yeah, and as we've kind of alluded to, I'll give you the title of his newest book. It's called Rollback, Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Fiscal Collapse. I, w- I want to give you, you guys, the listeners, the first sentence from the book. We can discuss it. You know, John and I will discuss it here for a minute. But he says, nobody trusts the government, pollsters tell us. In April 2010, the Pew Research Center found that only 22% of Americans polled said they trusted the government at least most of the time. I, I thought that was an interesting um, topic or, or sentence because even I oftentimes, everybody does. You question the government and their worth and things like that. But in my opinion, the opposite of government is a free market society, right, where there's no intervention from an outside source, things like that. And although there can be claims made to both sides, I feel like deregulation played a large role in the uh, collapse of Wall Street and the financial institution because left to their own vices, people are going to take on risk, they're going to be greedy, and they're going to do things they normally wouldn't have. So I was was wondering, and John, I'm going to ask you, how many people do you think, if you were to ask them, who do you trust more, the government or a Wall Street CEO, which one would you pick? Mm. That is a tough question. I probably would side with the government for the most part, but I, I think there is a caveat to that because I don't think that every single person on, on Wall Street is evil. So th- there might be members of Wall Street that are out for philanthropy and the betterment of society, etc. So no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it'd probably be a similar statistic. The sad point of that is just basically, who do we trust? I mean, you don't trust the government who's supposed to protect you. You don't trust big business who's supposed to kind of look out for capitalism and I guess the benefit of it and, and making money and making things happen. And I think, and, and what Dr. Woods argues, and John and I, you know, we've talked about this even prior to the this broadcast, but in the end, it comes down to we need to be able to trust each other and we need to be able to rely on doing things for the greater good and everything. I wanted to bring up a quick comment based on your deregulation comment as well, too, because yes. I look at some of the regulatory policies that were put into place that have failed or didn't work. So on the flip side, we've put in policies that haven't worked. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I don't think that there is a right answer, but you know, deregulation versus wrong regulatory policies. Wrong regulation? I, yeah, I like yeah, that. You know? Yeah, it, it is tough, actually. And I think that's why we here at Smart People Podcast figured, you know, let's get somebody on, regardless of their stance or if we believe every word they say, they've definitely done their homework and see if we can learn something new. And that's kind of where Dr. Woods came from. So, John, unless you have anything important or pressing to say. I actually do. I'm pretty sure I know how to fix this economy. And that's to go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and use the Amazon widget for ah. everything that you purchase on Amazon. What did Reagan say? Trickle down economics. Make that, <laughs> make it trickle down. Trickle down to us, man. We're, go- we're not going to make it. <laughs> So here is Dr. Woods. Take a listen and stick around afterwards for a brief summary, sure to turn into an argument. Dr. Woods, before we get into your new book, I first wanted to ask you to give our listeners a little insight into your background, what it is that you do, and how you got to where you are. Uh, Okay, well, 
I could mention that I have degrees from Harvard and Columbia, but that I think would make people question me more than respect. The smart yeah, people. I'll leave that out entirely. <laughs> but yeah, my background is in history. Uh, Rollback is my eleventh book. I've had a couple of New York Times bestsellers in that list. Uh, one of them was called Meltdown, about the financial crisis, in which I gave a uh, a non-Paul Krugman overview of what actually happened there. It was not a matter of oh, my goodness, we had deregulation, and then the Earth broke free of its axis and went spinning toward the sun. I, I gave a different overview, free market point of view. And then the politically incorrect guide to American history is what sort of put me on the map in 2004. I wish I could take credit for such a brilliant title from a marketing standpoint. The politically incorrect guide to American history, that title alone made people say, I've got to see what's in this thing. I never would have thought of that in a million years. But <laughs> So basically now I... You know, I mean, I was a college professor for a number of years, but basically, I'm, I, I just, I write, you know, I smack down the bad guys, and I, I, I go after sacred cows, and this is somehow my living, and all my stuff is linked at TomWoods.com. Great. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of your studies are in history, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, and then you tied in politics later on? Well, I mean, like anybody, I'm interested in current events, but okay. my scholarly expertise is in U.S. history. Given your extensive studies in history and politics, do you find that we tend to make the same mistakes over and over again? I mean, you know, they say that the reason we study history is to try to learn from our mistakes, but sometimes I don't think we do that as a society. Yeah, well, I think the major mistake is that is the expectation that we're going to learn from the mistakes. <laughs> and uh, But I, I think what really happens is that the mistakes are portrayed, uh, you know, really as, as, as wisdom. Because what normally happens is, I mean, you know, most people are educated in an environment in which, you know, you walk into the classroom when you're in the sixth grade and you look up on the wall and all these U.S. presidents are looking down at you from up there. You know, you have all these great men like Chester A. Arthur and Benjamin Harrison looking down upon you. And you're basically given a version of American life in which uh, really all the things the government has done in the past uh, – are basically they're almost all brilliant. I mean, there are hardly any mistakes at all. This is all pure brilliance, and it's all been carried out by wonderful, selfless public servants who are merely innocently pursuing the public good. And if it weren't for them, you know, we'd all be dead in a ditch somewhere. You know, we wouldn't have any art or science. Uh, we, we would all our limbs would be blown off by exploding consumer products. We'd all be working for a dollar a day in a mine somewhere. And so basically, people sort of conclude. Now, gosh, I better give this institution the benefit of the doubt because, you know, where, good heavens, where would I be without President this, thus and so? <laughs> We'd all be a bunch of helpless and pathetic boobs. So what I find, in other words, is that we get a version of history that makes it impossible for us to perceive mistakes uh, because we're basically told that, you know, look, in, in the old days, everybody was poor and worked in terrible conditions. Today, people are richer and work in better conditions. Therefore, the government is responsible for this. It's the government. If it weren't for these, we would all still be dead and dying in a ditch and all that. I am arguing in rollback that this is as superficially plausible as all that sounds. This is a completely erroneous way of thinking about the relationship between government, the standard of living, freedom, and so on and on. I'm basically arguing that practically everything the federal government has been doing has been a, a gross mistake, and it's not indeed something to be celebrated as the sixth grade textbook would have it. I know you co-authored a book titled Who Killed the Constitution, where you call for a literal interpretation of America's founding documents. 
You talk about how the United States government today is restrained not by the Constitution, but simply by a sense of what it can get away with. What I'm wondering is, don't you think it's necessary to allow some interpretation and modification of these documents as we evolve and grow and, and change? Um, yeah, I have no objection to that. The objection I have is, what form do the changes take? I mean, do we just have unelected judges wake up one day and say, well, you know, today is, uh, you know, it's April such and such 2011. We've, we've suddenly decided that the following clauses of the Constitution no longer really apply or the words that they employ have to be interpreted in exactly the opposite sense from from that people believe they meant when they ratified the document, that's just dangerous. I mean, then you might as well have no constitution. So my point is, if you if you do want to change the constitution, and obviously there are aspects of it that needed to be changed and that it was good that were changed, we have a process for doing that. The Constitution includes an amendment process. If you want to do that, that was Thomas Jefferson's argument. If you want to change the Constitution, go ahead and do it, you know, genius. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. But the way you do it is not by just simply saying, well, gosh, it would be too clumsy to go to all the trouble of amending the Constitution. Let's just go ahead and do whatever it is anyway. Even Alexander Hamilton, who favored a, a broad interpretation of the Constitution, he said in the, in the Federalist, or sometimes the Federalist Papers, that it, I mean, almost speaking today, almost like he was speaking to law professors today. He was saying it's not enough to say, uh, well, you know, times have changed or people's opinions have changed, so let's just act as if the Constitution is inoperative in this or that area. He said, no, no, no. Until the people have gone through the solemn formality of amending the Constitution, nothing short of that is sufficient to change the way the Constitution is interpreted. I mean, like you, you wouldn't say, "Well, gosh, don't don't the um, don't the rules of poker need to change with the times?" Maybe they do. Maybe they do need to change with the times. But but they don't change in the middle of a game, like in the middle of me playing poker with you. I mean, what would you say if I suddenly said, "Look, my two pair beats your full house." Right. Hey, you're living in the past, man. These are the new rules. Like you would clearly say, "Wait a minute, there's got to be some way to change the rules." I was in the middle of the game. Like, there's got to be some formal process, right? That's what the amendment process is. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier in the episode, you have a brand new book that just came out a little over a month ago titled Rollback, Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Fiscal Collapse. Before I get into some specific questions about this book, could you give our listeners a general overview of what it's about? Okay, sure. I mean, I think this is, this is stuff that Americans have got to understand because of what the unfortunately pretty grave situation that is about to confront us. And I say this not as somebody who is a natural pessimist. It's not like I, I take delight in this situation. I'm, I'm none of those things. But, you know, facts are facts, and we, we've got to face them. And Rollback is basically doing two things. Ten percent of the book is saying this. We are on a path that's going to lead us down the road to complete bankruptcy. So that is to say, yeah, the federal government will still send out checks to people, but the checks aren't going to buy anything. Because we are facing, it's not just the deficits are really high. A lot of people feel like, well, deficits have been high for a long time, big deal. I haven't seen any really negative consequences from it, so maybe this is all a lot of scare talk. No, no, because even if interest rates stay super low, which they almost surely won't, by 2020 we'll still be paying almost a trillion dollars a year just in interest payments on the national debt, just in interest, a trillion dollars a year in the best-case scenario, and then we have the problem of the entitlement programs, 
which are underfunded by more than a hundred trillion dollars, which is larger than the, the GDP of the whole world. I mean, at some point, you have to say, changes need to be made, and no, you can't simply say, well, we'll just raise taxes and get our, get our, ourselves out of this, because even if that weren't immoral, even, even if just seizing people's stuff were not immoral, just from a practical point of view, the problem is that ever since 1950, it just happens to be the case that no matter what the tax rate is, rates have gone up, rates have gone down, but the federal government has never really been able to grab more than about 20% of GDP from the population because, because people just modify their behavior and avoid the taxes one way or another. So the point is that there is no way to tax your way out of that, and there's certainly no way to borrow or print your way out of it. So we've got wrenching changes facing us, and meanwhile – you know, a $61 billion cut, which is like 10 cents off a trip to the moon, is sending people into hysteria. I mean, right. this is guaranteed. So basically the book is saying, this is the situation we're in. And then the 90% of the book is saying, now given that we're going to have to cut back, I want to go through all the major claims that government has been making for itself and show that, number one, these are false. And number two, not only would we not die instantly in the absence of all these government programs, we would flourish. One topic I did want to discuss, seeing how you brought it up, was taxes. Given that today we have perhaps the largest disparity between the rich and the poor of all time, while at the same time the rich are being taxed at one of the lowest tax rates of all time, shouldn't we be taxing the rich at a slightly higher tax bracket, perhaps a rate that's more in line with historical standards? Um, well, I, I, I just feel like I, I, I don't see how that's morally uh, justifiable. I'd like to just eliminate as much tax burden from the poor as I possibly could. Okay. But unless people are, are acquiring their wealth in ways that are morally or legally objectionable, I mean, in, in that case, I'm all for going after them. I mean, there are pl plenty of people who get rich through the military-industrial complex or whatever who have uh, very morally dubious sources of income, or their income is partly thanks to some, very, some government privilege that they get or whatever it is. Well, then, then that's certainly that's a different matter. But somebody who honestly earns his income, well, okay. I mean, so he's he's improved, he's done something that we obviously liked, or we wouldn't have given him our money in the first place. So no, I don't I don't think that's a morally acceptable view. The fact that there's a disparity between rich and poor, I think, is largely due to the fact that, thanks to globalization, we have a huge, huge, huge marketplace now. So if I'm the CEO of some corporation and now I'm catering to 2 billion people and I'm one of the people who helps feed 2 billion people, well, that means that the value of my work is much greater than it was when I was dealing with feeding 20 million people. Whereas a guy who's a janitor in an office building, the value of his work has not changed as a result of He's still just sweeping a floor. But a guy who now caters to a whole world market is suddenly is now dealing with the, the value product of his labor having increased very significantly. So that is one reason, anyway, for, for the disparity. But the fact is we have a poor population in the Western world that lives at a material standard that would have been beyond the wildest dreams of the greatest monarchs of European history. Could you imagine an 18th century king who didn't even have flush toilets? I mean, they didn't even have flush toilets. The Habsburgs did not have flush toilets in the 18th century, the greatest monarchs in the whole world. And meanwhile, we've got people who, uh, you know, have cell phones where they can have Skype conversations walking down the street. 
I, I mean, the Jetsons didn't even have that. The Jetsons, <laughs> here it's like supposed to be unthinkable science fiction miracles, and Mr. Jetson had to sit in a chair and stare at a screen to be seen. In the, we don't even need that. We can walk around with a and And you multiply that by a million. I mean, the, the amenities that people enjoy and absolutely take for granted, nobody, not even the wealthiest people in the world, enjoy a standard of living like that. So when you're talking about disparities, you mean, okay, a rich guy drives a Ferrari and a poor guy drives a, a beat-up Ford. But two centuries ago, what was the disparity? A rich guy gets to ride in a carriage and a poor guy with no shoes has to walk. I would say that is a much, much bigger disparity, wouldn't you, than, well, than one guy has a fancy car, one guy has a beat-up car. Both of them have cars. That's an amazing diminishment of the disparity between rich and poor in my book. Well, in that sense, I might agree, but what about essentials such as food? Many of today's poor can't even afford food to feed their families, which is a problem we shouldn't even have to worry about today. Food prices are definitely going up, but there are a lot of possible reasons for that. And I, I would not surprise me at all. I mean, that was one of the reasons that Ron Paul's uh, monetary policy subcommittee just had a hearing on the relationship between the policies of the Federal Reserve System pouring all this money into our economy and the uh, the, the growth in, uh, in in food prices. This has not helped the common person. Before we had this supposedly indispensable institution. In the 19th century, prices consistently fell in peacetime. They consistently fell so that your dollar that you saved would buy you more and more over time. People kind of liked that. The same way computers, your, your dollar in the computer market buys more and more over time even today. Whereas now, people even think that it's just like part of the natural order of things, that things get more expensive over time. They, they just think that's the way the world works. It isn't. It, it, it wasn't that way from the beginning of the U.S., all the way up to about 1914, prices fell consistently. You could buy more with your dollar in a hundred years than you could now. Whereas today, only an idiot would save for his retirement by piling up dollar bills, because we all know they're not going to be worth anything right. by the time he retires. That was not the case in the 19th century. You didn't live with that kind of uncertainty that the poor have to live with today. So I think it's another example of the elites getting fat on the backs of the poor. It's not the honest, industrious, rich person that the poor has a just grievance with. It's the supposedly uh, selfless public servants who are sucking up the resources of society and blowing them on pointless bureaucracies and six-figure salaries for people whose jobs we wouldn't even notice if they were taken away uh, that they have their just grievance with. With the subtitle of the book being Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Fiscal Collapse, people are going to get the sense that you're recommending sort of, as you mentioned earlier, a deregulation, getting the government's hands out of so many arenas. And I think the worry when it comes to that is, as a result, we end up having events such as the recent financial collapse. When we deregulated the banks and allowed them to take on more risk than they had been allowed to since the Great Depression, they collapsed, largely in part because of this risk. Where do you recommend we do put the power, or how do we solve these problems if we don't have this regulating entity, albeit the government might not be the perfect solution? Well, this, unfortunately, it's hard to give a quick answer to. I've got probably seven or eight pages in rollback about deregulation, what it really was, what its connection, if any, to the financial crisis was. Uh, and that's, that's hard to say. I mean, in fact, I, I do talk about this in a speech on YouTube. You just type in rollback and woods. 
Okay. You can you can get a little bit of it. But by and large, my my view of this is that I don't see like no one has been able to tell me which repealed regulation would have prevented the financial crisis. I don't see that there was one one thing that we had before that they got rid of, and then we had the financial crisis. So normally, what they'll say is, okay, okay, that's true. We didn't have there wasn't any regulation we got rid of, and then, you know, all hell broke loose. So, so usually then the response is, well, we weren't proactive enough. We, we didn't we didn't think of the regulations in time. We should have done that. And and basically my answer to that is that the whole system is screwed up. The whole system is a non-free market system. It's a, The banking system is a cartel arrangement with the Federal Reserve at the, at the center. That is not a free market arrangement that encourages – these institutions to take greater risks because they know there's a gigantic bailout agency standing by to, to help them. But more than that, when we consider who the regulators are, I mean, we had 115 regulatory bodies for the financial system. Their budgets have, have increased by three times over the past few decades, correcting for inflation. Uh, that's exactly the opposite of, I'm sure, what most people assume. Would we have been better off if we had 116 agencies? I mean, if, if the regulators think nothing's wrong, and indeed they didn't, I mean, Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan, they have regulatory powers at the head of the Fed. They were telling us housing standards, uh, lending standards are perfectly robust. You should take out adjustable rate mortgages. The fundamentals of the housing market are sound. You know, so, okay, I'm, I'm to believe that if I hired a thousand more people who were going to spew pablum like this, we'd be better off. No, the, 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 pro, the problems with the system are many, but there were not. It was not that there were existing regulations that were repealed, and then we had the crisis. It was that we had a Federal Reserve that got the economy drunk on cheap money, and this money found its way into the mortgage market, and then everybody's got five investment properties, interest-only mortgages, and no job. I mean, there's something wrong with that economy. Mm -hmm. That is not an outcome that a genuine free market would have created. So I say. Let people uh, stand or fall on their own merits. Uh, let there not be an implicit standby bailout policy that encourages moral hazard. And this would do more to clean up the market than all the, all the regulations that can be gamed by the major players anyway put together. All right. Well, I know you have to get going. I really appreciate your time. It was great talking to you. Again, your book, Roll Back, Repealing Big Government Before the Coming Fiscal Collapse, is available now. We will provide a link on our website so people can purchase that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And people can all can even read a free chapter, which even if you're inclined to disagree with me, in fact, maybe more so if you are inclined to disagree with me, mm -hmm. read this free chapter. You can find it at tomwoods.com and see what you think. All right, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Woods. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Woods. Chris, I hear you might have something for our listeners. You want to go into that? And now for another fast-breaking news story. Yeah, actually, Dr. Woods was kind enough to give us a few copies of his book. So we are going to do another free book giveaway. If you guys have listened in the past, you know the drill. We have now given away, I don't know, I think probably between 10 and 15 books, and the listeners seem really receptive. There are two ways to enter in for a free book, which we'll send you. Uh, one, you can go to Twitter. Our handle is smartpeoplepod, and just tweet about us, something nice, you like the podcast, whatever it might be, and include at smartpeoplepod. That way we know 
you like us and you want to book. Or you can do the same thing, pretty similar on Facebook. In your status update, just type in something nice about the podcast, recommend us to your friends, get creative, and type in at Smart People Podcast. So do that, and as normal, next week we will notify the winners, and we'll get the books out to you ASAP. So now that we have that over with, I know John and I aren't political pundits, but we consider ourselves to be pretty smart. We kind of wanted to talk a little bit about what Dr. Woods talked about. There were some things that I agreed with, probably more that I didn't agree with. And one that's a hot button, and we brushed over it in the interview, was taxes. And I was saying how I think that, actually an interesting statistic, between 1930 and 1986, the average tax rate for income earned in the top tax bracket was an astounding 71%. Whereas from 1986 until today, the average is 39%. So I'm not saying that the rich should be taxed at some historically outlandish rate, but to be taxed at one of the lowest tax rates ever, while the disparity between the rich and the poor continues to grow and the deficit increases, seems a little counterintuitive. Roach, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that there should be some type of graduated tax bracket, but I don't want it to get to those extremes because then, you know, we say that our government is the one that put that stuff in place and has gotten people used to that. And for us to go back and be like, oh, well, we did this 30 years ago. We did this 60 years ago. We need to raise the taxes up to X amount of percent if you make X dollars. I think you're going to have a lot of shady stuff going around with people hiding money, people doing things that might not be so legal or or ethical to hide those profits and those earnings. Yeah, maybe, or we could, as we discussed prior to, simplify the tax, you know, the tax system some bit. I don't know. Yes. You know, if this podcast fails, we can start a consulting company <laughs> where, we, where we come up with the optimal tax, uh, tax code. I know that that's, you know, I joke around about that. As we mentioned before, talking earlier tonight, you know, the tax code, when you, if you print it out from online or you go get the books, you know, you're looking at things that are thicker than a dictionary. And I can understand, you know, people's hesitant to reading that stuff cover to cover. Yeah. So the tax issue is always a hot button and one that we could discuss until nobody wanted to listen to us anymore. Another one he goes over in his book that we didn't get a chance to discuss in the interview is Social Security. And I know that that affects John, you and I, uh, our generation as much as anyone else, because we are the first ones kind of hearing or not the first, but because we are hearing about how Social Security is going to run out by the time we need it. So we're kind of supporting the elderly and we're never going to see that money. My outlook on it kind of is it's kind of our duty. I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but if that's the way that I'm going to help support my grandmother or my parents or something like that, I'm willing to pay it up now with no necessary guarantee in the future, hoping that whatever system comes afterwards that might be funded by our children, they're just as generous. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, when, when I took a job coming out of college, I really didn't understand how the social security system worked. I, all I knew was money got taken out of my paycheck and I would see it later in life. Well, it turns out that I'm probably not going to see it. 
So if they do away with Social Security, you know, I've already paid that to, to make sure that these people who have done great things for this country, to make sure that people that have, you know, lived long lives already have some money. I completely agree with you. Like if, if they do away with it, they do away with it. We've all started, you know, saving in 401ks and finding different ways to invest. So it's kind of a, you know, moot point for me. And then one other thing I really wanted to point out more so to our listeners who might not read the book when I was reading about how he talks about uh, the, the growing deficit and how we're spending on all these things and it's useless and he specifically goes into healthcare and he doesn't really agree with what Obama is going to do. My first reaction is because I've heard it before from so many people. How come we spend so much money on healthcare? And we have the, you know, such terrible, and I don't know the exact the exact numbers, but terrible infant mortality rates, things like that. And he literally jumps straight into that criticism. And it's interesting. I want to tell you guys what he says. He says that as for infant mortality, the United States counts every baby who shows any signs of life as having been born alive. Other countries are not so generous, such as France and Belgium, where a baby born at less than 26 weeks is registered as dead. So that's just one instance of how you can hear things and not know the full story. He also talks about how life expectancy here is lower than we believe it should be. But one thing he says is life expectancies in other countries don't factor in the fact that we have an extremely high homicide rate and deaths from car accidents, which other countries don't have. And that's no real reflection on our healthcare system. So these are things that, I, although I think they're legitimate concerns for both sides, it helps to gather all the knowledge you can. Yeah, it's funny because I was actually having a conversation with somebody a little while ago. You can watch a documentary on any subject on both sides and, you know, they come up with facts. So you sit down and you watch a documentary and you're like, oh, this is wrong because of A, B, and C. And those, you know, you just got to be real careful where these statistics and facts are coming from and you know, how things are looked different in different research reports and whatnot. Speaking of documentaries, and I'm going to go ahead right here and it's going to show my bias. But after you listen to this, if you're feeling a little, you know, a little unsure, I also would like you to go watch the movie Inside Job, which <laughs> is narrated by Matt Damon. And it's a great movie. And I think it will at least provide you some of the other perspective from what Dr. Woods might lead you to believe. I'm not saying either way. I'm just saying help educate yourself. All right. And lastly, one of the things I want to say is he talks a lot about the bailout and Wall Street and things like that. And oftentimes, I don't even know the answer, but should we have bailed out these large companies? Because you don't want to, right? You don't want to say, oh, they took, out, took on risk and didn't have to pay for it. But in the same token, if you ask any sane person what would happen if we let all these large banks fail, it wouldn't just be America that had a problem. It would be the world. It has become a global economy. We're all interlinked. And in essence, they were too large, too big to fail. So one thing that Dr. Woods talks about is we might have to fail. We might have to collapse and dig ourselves back up. He says this is kind of an unconventional thing to say, but, and I'll read from his book, he says, in the short run, people's lives will be disrupted, in some cases severely, and there will be much human suffering for a generous people to alleviate. But in the long run, our prospects are much brighter. 
When the crisis subsides, we will emerge with a more just and humane society. We will have learned to care for each other as families and neighbors once did. We will no longer look superstitiously to one institution to devise solutions to the problems of 309 million people. Instead of seeking subsidies taken from our fellow Americans by threats of state violence, we will have to seek wealth peacefully by discovering how we can best please our fellow man. I think that's interesting, albeit semi-unrealistic. And John, I'd love to get your take on it. But just that I agree. I mean, I would love to see that happen. And I personally think, and actually Dr. Judith in our last podcast said she thinks also we're moving towards that. As many things are messed up in the world, I think we have more people who are outspoken about it. And I would like to see kindness spreading, although I don't know if it's even possible with the amount of greed we also have. I don't know. What do you think, John? It is kind of a utopian type of dream to, to think that everybody's going to be nice to each other and, and try to benefit each other and help each other out, all that kind of stuff. This is kind of a giant leap, but in my eyes... What I'm seeing what's going on in the Middle East right now, where you have all these countries that have just had it with their forms of government and all the people are coming to arms. Granted, it is it, it starts out as protests against the government and some in some cases have turned into violence, which I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, however many years from now we see something like that happen in the United States where it just it gets to the point where there's too many Americans that need help, aren't getting help. And, you know, they come together, they band together. And yeah, I'd like to see everybody band together in a positive way as opposed to a violent way. But with what's going on in the world today, I mean, we're a global country now. I wouldn't be surprised if that repeats within the United States after, you know, some period of time here, especially if we do have a complete financial collapse. Yeah. And I hope we avoid it. I don't know. We'll see. I, I remember actually a couple of years ago when this was all going down, people at my office were actually bragging about how they went and bought guns and tasers and stuff like that. And I think it's a common reaction and oftentimes Absolutely. it's an overreaction. Oh, and we're doing okay so far. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. None of us do, but hopefully you'll know a little bit more about it after listening to this. We want to invite you guys to hit us up, send us an email, contact us through our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, tweet about it. Let us know your thoughts and feelings and, you know, try and educate the masses one, one podcast at a time. I agree. And as I mentioned, with the globe getting smaller and smaller, we got to reach out and help, you know, everybody out there. So again, guys, keep donating to Japan, help them out. They were hit hard and they're still going through that whole nuclear meltdown mess. If you can just throw five or 10 bucks towards the Red Cross or other organizations that are out there to help brings the world closer. Makes the world a better place. That it does. That's your smile for the day, folks. All right. Well, as always, music was brought to you by The Outdoors for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please tune in next week where we have another interesting and exciting guest. And leave us a comment or a rating on iTunes if you haven't done that yet. Make sure you hit that little subscribe button. Help us out. Follow us along. And leave us your thoughts on Twitter. We'd love to hear them. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take it easy.